0: Let me pray. Lord, you are so good. Lord, so holy, so righteous, so faithful, so just, so gracious. Lord, you are completely worthy of our praise. Lord, as the Bible study this morning was in Genesis 6 through 11, Lord, we see the depravity of our souls, we see the wickedness of our flesh and of our unregenerated hearts Lord which is why we need you we need a savior we need a Lord God thank you for sending your son to die for us and then sending your spirit to indwell us to regenerate our hearts Lord so that we could desire to do your will because prior we couldn't Lord continue to work in our hearts to make us want you more to love you more to know you more to worship you more Lord, let us be a people marked by our dependence and desperation upon you. Oh, God, exalt yourself in this sermon. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Before I begin, the sermon title this morning is called Desperate Worship. Desperate Worship. And I want to read from this Puritan prayer book where he says, Remember, O my soul. It is your duty and privilege to rejoice in God. He requires it of you for all his favors of grace. Rejoice then in the giver and in his goodness. Be happy in him, O my heart, and in nothing but God. For whatever a man trusts in, from that he expects happiness. He who is the ground of your faith should be the substance of your joy. Whence then comes heaviness and dejection when joy is sown in you, promised by the Father, bestowed by the Son, enwrought by the Holy Spirit, yours by grace, your birthright in believing. Are you seeking to rejoice in yourself from an evil motive of pride and self-reputation? You have nothing of your own but sin, nothing to move God to be gracious or to continue his grace towards you. If you forget this, you will lose your joy. Are you grieving under a sense of indwelling sin? Let godly sorrow work repentance as the true spirit which the Lord blesses and which creates fullest joy. Sorrow for self opens rejoicing in God. Self-loathing draws down divine delights. Have you sought joys in some creature comfort? Look not below God for happiness. Fall not asleep in Delilah's lap. Let God be all in all to you and joy in the fountain that is always full. Church, the last few weeks, God has been doing a really big work in my heart. It seems as if he has brought me low in several aspects so that I would learn a greater dependence on him. After all, the Christian life should be one of complete and total surrender to him. All the time, not just for our justification. This is why Paul boasts in his weakness in 2 Corinthians 12, because in them Christ is his greatest strength, resulting in Christ getting the most glory. And why Paul encourages us to press on and count everything in this life as dung and to seek to gain more and more and more of Christ in Philippians 3, because we haven't yet arrived In eternity, we will finally be totally dependent on Him. But now we are to be learning to be more and more dependent upon Him. However, I don't know about you, but the more I read the Word and the more I live my life, the more I see inconsistencies. The Word calls for us to be desperate for Christ. And yet, as I live my life, I don't feel desperate for Him very often. And then it begs for me to ask the question, who or what Am I truly dependent on? Because if it isn't Christ whom I'm dependent on, then I am actually guilty of worshiping something or someone else. So what is it? Could it be my job, my family, my church, my money, my relationships, my name and what people say about me? Where does the satisfaction and joy come from? If all was stripped away from me, could I still stand and praise Jesus? as I am commanded to all throughout Scripture. As you heard, every idea that I threw out for what I am possibly dependent on begins with my, which ultimately means that my greatest temptation is to be dependent upon myself. For being honest, this is something we all struggle with, and quite frankly, we will all struggle with until the day we die. However, my point in this sermon is not to let us off the hook in regards to self-dependence, which is actually self-worship, but it, it, is, it is to get us to cast our eyes off of ourselves and onto the only one worthy to be gazed upon, the only one worthy to be dependent upon, the only one worthy to be desperate for, and the only one worthy to be worshipped. And therefore, I have a question for us all. When was the last time out of desperation that we cried out to the Lord? When was the last time out of an abundance of thanksgiving you clapped and gave thanks to the Lord? I mean, think about it. When we get excited about things, we will clap and scream. For us sports fans in the room, when we watch our team have success on television, we clap, we scream, we get excited, we text our friends. For those of you who have... Children and grandchildren, when you go to their sporting event, there's nothing more exciting than seeing your son get on first base or score a basket or score a goal. For those of you who have kids in theater, there's nothing more exciting for you than to see your child out there on the stage with boldness and confidence. And when the theater is done, when the show is over, we clap. We clap for that in which we are excited about. We clap in that, in that in which we find our joy from. And in Psalm chapter 47, David writes, "O clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a skillful psalm. When was the last time we clapped and sang and shouted over the goodness of our King? David tells us to clap, to shout, to sing. Church, in this moment, I want for us to take some time and clap and shout and sing praises to Jesus, our glorious Creator and King and Redeemer. He alone is to be praised. He alone is to be worshipped. He alone is to be depended upon. This is why I've asked the worship team to remain up here as they will now lead us in the singing of Psalm 139. Take this time to shout your praises, to analyze your heart, to pray, to clap, to be on your knees, whatever you must do to rejoice in the goodness of our God. So would you please rejoice with me before we continue. Praise Jesus, truly. He is so worthy. Let us not forget it. Now, church, please, if we could open our Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I, I don't have a PowerPoint this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 18 and we'll be in Psalms chapters 38 through 40. Uh, nowhere else. And so I figured it would be easy for us to follow along in the Word. If you don't have a Bible, there is one on the back table. There are some on the back table. So open up to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, as I believe this text is very, very pertinent for our time this morning. Now before we read, I want to give us some context. This parable is mentioned by Jesus as he is speaking about his second coming and how his followers are to live while awaiting his return. And therefore, since Jesus has not yet returned, this parable is just as true for us As it was to them. Now let me read. He says, Now, as he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to the judge, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now what do we see? Hopefully we saw the point of the parable right away in verse 1. That at all times we need to pray and not to lose heart. But in what way? Well, as Jesus describes, like a desperate widow in great need. In fact, we see that this widow is so desperate that she, without stopping, continues to go to the judge who doesn't fear God nor respect man and begs of him continually until she receives the protection she needs. Now the point of this parable is not to say, Church, just keep pestering God until He gives you what you want because He, like the judge, will get tired of hearing your, your requests and finally give in. That would be a gross misinterpretation of such a beautiful parable. Instead, the point of the text in regards to how we are to pray is found in verse 7 where he says God will bring about justice for His elect." In which we are, if we are those who cry to him day and night for what we need. Just as persistent and desperate as the widow who sought protection from the judge. And what we need is Christ. We need more of Christ. Now, positionally, we have everything we need in Christ Jesus. We have all of Christ. We have the most amount of Christ that we could ever have. We couldn't get any more of Christ. We have it all. But in the practical sense, we need more of Him. We need to experience more of Him. We need to love Him more. We need to desire Him more. We need to know Him more. And as we do, we get the peace, the joy, the rest that we are to be after. The safety that we are to be after. And so then I wonder, are we a people marked by our crying out to God to give us more of Christ in the experiential sense? Are we a people marked by our crying out to God to make us more like Christ? Paul begs and pleads of God in 2 Corinthians that he would conform us more and more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. Are we marked by our crying out to God to make us more consumed with Christ, to make us more desperate for Christ? If we're not, we ought to be. Because in the next verse in verse eight, Jesus says that only those whom are found with this face on the earth, this faith on the earth, will receive the justice they are looking for when the Son of Man returns. He says, the Son of Man will return and give his people justice, but will he find faith like this on the earth? What kind of faith? Faith that is marked by constant and fervent and desperate prayer for the one true God, the only one who can provide all of our needs. Church, this has been my prayer lately, both for you and for me for my family and for my friends, for our church across the globe, that we would be desperate for Jesus. That we would be desperate for Jesus just like the widow. I mean, picture the widow in all of her desperation running every single day to the judge until she gets what she needs. We won't get what we need in full until the day when Christ returns. Is our life marked by this constant and fervent running to Christ for everything that we need? It is only in this desperation where we can truly find the peace, the joy, the rest, and the thankfulness that our hearts as true believers are really after. And there's nothing sweeter than being dependent upon Jesus. Which is why that is the method for how we will live in all of eternity. In all of eternity, we will be fully dependent upon Jesus. If you were to read Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, you will see an awesome display of how every created thing, all the animals, all the seraphim, all the angelic beings, and all the elders and the people worship God forever. In fact, there's five specific like praises In Revelation 4 and 5, where they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, worthy to be praised. In fact, not only do they cry out and worship God constantly, but we see that there is nothing that these people would rather do. I mean, think about everything that we get in heaven that's promised to us. We get the the fruit of of life and, and the waters, and we get prosperity and sinlessness and we get no pain and no suffering and jesus even says we get to reign and to rule with him but yet in revelation 4 and 5 we see these people throw even the crowns that they earned from faithfully living unto christ on this side of glory at the feet of jesus in humble recognition that he alone is worthy of our praise And so when we talk about the crown that we will receive for enduring on this side of glory, even that crown we will take and give it back to Christ because there's nothing that we would rather do than worship him forever. Because he alone is the reason for our crown. What a beautiful picture of people who are desperate for Jesus. And therefore, what does this desperation look like in our lives today, in 2022, As people who have not yet seen the return of Christ, as people that are waiting for the return of Christ. And this is why I ask for us to turn to Psalm chapter 38 and 39 and chapter 40. As King David leads us in three different Psalms, and what I believe is a pretty good picture of how we, even as regenerated believers, as people with new hearts that are indwelt with the Spirit of God, that have a desire to obey Him, people like us, and how we are to live this life. First off, in regard to our capabilities, let's look at Psalm chapter 39, verses 1 through 3. David cries out and he says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. What do we see? A man who recognizes his depravity so much so that he decides he just won't speak. But even that didn't work. But instead, it just grew his sorrow even more. You ever been there? Where you just feel like you can't do anything right? Where no matter how hard we try, we fail and fail again? I have. And in part, it's true. In that we can't do anything apart from Christ. However, in Christ, we can obey. And we can defeat sin. For me, this battle comes to the surface, every opportunity I am given to preach. I feel inadequate. I feel unworthy. And yesterday I was sent a quote from Richard Baxter, an old Puritan preacher, where he writes, Our whole work as preachers must be carried on under a deep sense of our own insufficiency and of our entire dependence on Christ. We must go for light and life and strength to him who sends us on the work. And when we feel our own faith weak and our hearts dull and unsuitable to so great a work as we have to do, we must have recourse to him and say, Lord, will you send me with such an unbelieving heart to persuade others to believe? Must I daily plead with sinners about everlasting life and everlasting death? And have no more belief or feeling of those weighty things myself. O oh, send me not naked and unprovided to the work. But as you command me to do it, furnish me with a spirit suitable thereto. Prayer must carry on our work as well as preaching. He preaches not heartily to his people that prays not earnestly for them. If we prevail not with God to give them faith and repentance. We shall never prevail with them to believe and to repent. This resonates. In my flesh, I can do no good, nor say anything good. My prayer every time I preach is that they would be God's words and not my own. And I'm always reminded of my own sins and my insufficiencies, ways in which I am unworthy to be here, in this position, with this platform. It's simply grace, and grace that I wish not to abuse, but I often do. How I long for us to grow in our desperation for Christ, and really it starts with me as as my prayer life before the week, and just serving throughout the week in in lots of ways. I, I feel like David. Okay, God, I just won't do anything then. And the sorrow grows. As we see more and more the insufficiencies in our flesh. But in Christ we can, and in Christ we are sufficient, as it is Christ in us. Next, in David's undoing of himself, he recognizes the meaninglessness of his life. In chapter 39, verses 3 through 6, or as Ecclesiastes puts it, life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And David writes here, Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. David realizes that even in his riches, even his riches do him no good on this earth. And that his life in respects to the age of the world is quite vain. In other words, David realizes that apart from Christ, life has no meaning. If our life is not fully dependent on Christ and we're striving for more... Dependence on Him, it's in vain. Because of our capabilities, we can't do it apart from Christ. George Mueller, an evangelist in the 1800s, known for his prayerful dependence on Christ, writes this about his life in his autobiography after he came to Saving Faith. He said, I had once fully served Satan, but now, drawn by the love of Christ, I was willing to suffer affliction for the sake of Jesus. Now, George Mueller wasn't a devil worshiper. He wasn't finding himself in a satanic temple on Sunday mornings. What he's simply saying is that he just wasn't converted. And by not being converted, it means that we are living for Satan or worshiping Satan. He says until he was drawn by the love of Christ. And once drawn by the love of Christ and once saved by Christ and in Christ and for Christ he realized this life is meaningless lest I live it for Christ. Which is why he says, I am willing to suffer affliction for the sake of Jesus. Whatever it may be that Christ has for me, I will go and do so. Because apart from this life, it's all in vain. What else? In these Psalms, we see that David is crushed by the weight of his sin which reveals a sweet, sweet need for Jesus. Turn back to Psalm chapter 38 and look at verses 1 through 2. David cries unto the Lord and he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger for your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand has pressed down on me. David knows he deserves wrath and burning anger for his sin, even as a man after God's own heart. Yet he pleads to the Lord out of desperation that God would deal gently with him. It reminds me of Psalm chapter 51 where David is wrought by his sin of adultery and murder. And so he cries out in verse 1 Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see, David knew that according to the law, he was worthy to be put to death for his adultery and murder. And he knew that. He was confident in that, which is why he pleads for grace, he pleads for loving kindness, he pleads for compassion. Church, just because we know grace will be given to us, let us never not plead for grace. And let us be so aware of the gravity and depravity of our sin and what it cost our gracious Lord on that cross. When we see it like that, we will inevitably be more like David and cry out in desperation to the Lord for grace, for loving kindness. And for compassion to forgive us and to restore us. To deal with us gently. Then in Psalm chapter 38 verses 3 through 8. We see David so broken over his sin that he is mourning. He says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. I hope that you can feel... The gravity of what David is saying. No health in his bones. Iniquities over his head. A heavy burden. Mourning all day long. Benumbed and badly crushed. Because of the agitation of his heart. You see, we don't know what David's sins are here. Because this happens before the adultery and the murder. And when we think of David as a sinner, we think of his adultery and his murder. And then we think of him later numbering the people. That was sin. But those all come after this. Scripture doesn't tell us what his sin is. Maybe he lied to his wife. Maybe he offered up an offering to the Lord not in a good heart. We have no idea. The point is is that this sin wasn't big enough per se to make it into Scripture for us to see yet we see that the weight of this sin is big enough to make it into Scripture. There is no sin that we commit that should not produce this feeling within us, even as born-again, regenerated followers of Christ. So broken over his sin. And look at verse 18. He says, For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. You ever feel so on edge because of your sin? You you feel like you can't approach the throne of God. You feel lost. You feel broken. You feel ashamed. David resonates. And flip over to Psalm chapter 40, verse 12. Where he says, For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And my heart has failed me. We see that David feels trapped and entangled by all of his sin. In other words, he is desperate for Jesus. And it feels like all of his sin is closing in on him. I've felt this way. In fact, I've felt this way this last couple of weeks. As God has brought tons of sin to mind And even gave me over to my own depravity to leave me feeling miserable like a failure full of fear and anxiety over the lack of ability within me to defeat and resist sin. Which caused me to, like David, cry out to the Lord. And what I noticed from these last couple of weeks more than ever was that God often hands us over to our various sinful passions so that we would see our need for Him. As this last couple of weeks, I got a hearty taste of my need for a greater desperation for Him. And so, church, you're not alone when you feel crushed by the weight of your sin, but don't wallow in it and feel self-pity like I did for too long. Instead, be like David and cry out to Jesus right away in humble repentance and godly sorrow. You see, when we sin against the Lord, this is the response that we should have. Desperate for Christ. When we sin and we're okay with it, we treat sin flippantly, like it doesn't matter, like it's fine, like His blood covers it, and our hearts become hardened and more calloused. And then we go on throughout our days having peace Not the peace of Jesus, but this pseudo-peace that we've created. One that runs from sin and says, well, there's no condemnation in Christ. And so I don't need to feel guilty or convicted over my sin. When in reality, David, a man after God's own heart, is broken and left crying out to the Lord in desperation. God, apart from you, I can do no good. This is why David says in Psalm chapter 38, verse 15, "For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord, my God." And in verses 21 through 22, "Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation." And in 39:12, he writes, "Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry." Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. And in Psalm 40, verse 17, he says, Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. O my God. Simply put, in times of desperation, over the heaviness of your sin, run to Jesus, confess your sin. Acknowledge your need for him and praise his holy name. Worship is the cure to self-pity and self-loathing because it takes our eyes off of ourselves and onto the only one worthy to be looked at. Now there are also other things that reveal our need for dependence onto Jesus that should also lead us to desperate worship, worship of him as laid out in these psalms such as afflictions, whether that be illness or trials in life. As we see in Psalm chapter 38, verse 10, David says, My heart throbs, my strength fails me, the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. And in verse 17, he says, For I am ready to fall, my sorrow is continually before me. And in chapter 39, verses 10 through 11, he writes, Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. And again in Psalm 40, verse 17, he says, Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord Be mindful of me. Sometimes God gives us sickness to reveal our need for Him, as it is so easy for us to take for granted good health. Sometimes God gives us trials to reveal our need for Him. George Mueller's autobiography has an entire chapter where he just depended upon the Lord. In, in his day, he was the pastor of the church, and you know how he made his income? Because people would rent certain pews in the church. And so as he became the pastor of this church, he would make a such and such amount of money by people renting pews. And he said, this is ridiculous. This isn't the heart of God. And so he just put a box in the back and he said, you guys just feel led to give. Whatever you feel led to give, just give. And he talks about over and over and over again how he woke up morning after morning with nothing. No food, no money. And his, him and his wife just spent time in prayer. And God, every single time, would meet their needs in different ways. George Mueller learned dependence upon God through trial, through having nothing, through having little. And sometimes he gives us sickness for that same purpose. So don't waste your sickness as it is an opportunity to worship him. Mueller says, as he is in the middle of sickness as he begins his ministry, he writes, I came to England physically weakened and soon became very ill. In my estimation, I was beyond recovery. Yet the weaker I became in body, the happier I was in spirit. Every sin I had ever committed was brought to mind. But I realized that I was washed and made completely clean in the blood of Jesus. This realization brought me great peace, and I longed to die and be with Christ. That should be so beautiful and so encouraging to us. Afflicted and needy, Mueller was. And he says In the time of my desperation, Christ became so much sweeter to me, so sweeter. So much sweeter that I longed to die. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I think verse 21, he says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's famously said, as Paul is sitting there imprisoned, the guards come to him and say, Paul, I am going to kill you. And he says, great, I get to be with Jesus he says, fine, then I won't kill you. I'll keep you alive. Great, because to live is Christ. And so I will preach the goodness of Jesus. And the jailer is at a loss. Because there's no way to defeat a man on fire for Jesus. Let us be a people desperate and on fire for Jesus. This last week, on top of being crushed by my gross immorality, I was plagued with headaches. And on Thursday, as I was preparing my sermon, I had a headache. And I just started reading the Word and praising Jesus, and the headache departed. And on Friday, the headache was back, and I was sitting in my office talking to Pastor Mark about the service for today. And I probably looked like a grump. He's talking, and I'm just sitting there like, yeah. Yeah, as my head was killing me. And we talked about the service, and we talked about what we were going to do, and we talked about adding Psalm 139 to the mix. And the next thing you know, Pastor Mark is playing music and strumming the guitar to Psalm 139 in the sanctuary. And I'm in my office, writing and belting the lyrics to the song, making a joyful noise unto the Lord. I probably sounded like a dying dog, but the heart was there. And as I'm praising and singing and sitting in my office, the headache departed. I went from having a headache and saying to myself, oh, my head hurts, and I'm not as joyful as I should be, in an instant to praise Jesus, I just want to live with him forever. I just want to live with him forever. Now the removal of the headache won't always happen. God doesn't promise healing from sickness, but the attitude change should always happen. And it was as if Jesus was reminding me of the power of desperate worship unto him. That in our times of need, if we worship the Lord, our hearts will inevitably change as they will be fixated upon him. Lastly, David writes about there being scoffers, both in the church and out of the church. David writes in Psalm chapter 38, verses 11 and 12. He says, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my kinsmen stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. And in verse 16, he writes, For I said, May they not rejoice over me. When my foot slips, would, would, would you magnify themselves against me? And in verses 19 through 20, he says, But my enemies are vigorous and strong. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. And those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow what is good. And in Psalm chapter 39, verse 8b, he cries out to the Lord, Make me not the reproach of the foolish. And in Psalm chapter 40, verses 14 and 15, he says, Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! You've fallen. You see, the enemy doesn't want us to follow Jesus. So he will do anything and everything to derail us, including inciting people, sometimes even siblings in the faith, to speak harsh things about us or to remind us of our past sin in hurtful ways. Remember, back in Genesis 6-11, through 11, as we studied it this morning, we see after the flood happens, Noah gets off the ark, and presumably there's a lot of time that passes as he was able to plant a vineyard and then reap the fruits of the vineyard. And as he's reaping the fruits of the vineyards, he gets drunk. And Noah lies there Noah, a righteous man, an obedient man, a faithful man, a man who found favor by God, lies there in his disgusting, sinful mess, naked and passed out. And it says his son Ham comes into the room, and he immediately goes and gets his brothers, Shem and Japheth. Why? To make a mockery of his father in his sin. Shem and Japheth take a covering and they cover Noah's nakedness. But as Noah awakes from his drunken slumber, he curses Ham. He curses the line of Canaan and these people become the enemies of God. And what we see is that the only thing worse than sin is mocking those who fall into sin. And in the church, it is easy for us to mock our brothers and sisters in Christ for their sin. To look down upon them, to gossip them, to slander them. The unbelievers for sure will. That is absolutely true. They want to call us hypocrites. But when our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether in this specific body or in other churches in the area and across the globe, look upon us... And point their finger at us and are just waiting for us to fall so that they can laugh and say, Aha! Another pastor has fallen. Surely. Another brother in Christ has fallen. Oh, you think you're so good. You don't follow Jesus. You sin just like me. And what that mindset can create is it can either lower the bar of sin for our own lives to where we get this sinful now approach to sin where I'm afraid to call anybody on their sin because I don't want them to call me on my sin and so you can sin and I can sin and we can all just sin and it's glorious. In fact, it's not glorious. And as I gave that picture on Friday night to our life group, it was so cool because I'm talking about this church and And all of their sinful practices. And Mia goes, well then that wouldn't be a church. Exactly. A church that is okay with sin isn't a church because we see David's not okay with sin. And so the approach for us as believers is in our sin to be repentant of our sin to have godly sorrow of our sin to love our brothers and sisters through their sin not to point and to mock them in their sin or to hold their past sins against them but to remind them of the truth of the gospel which leads us to praise the name of jesus to trust in the name of jesus and to find delight in doing his will Even when I sin, I should be renewed and restored to joy in Christ, to where I want to obey Him. That our hope would be in Him. And that as we see our brother or sister in sin, and we go to them in their sin, and we see them repent of that sin and trust in Jesus and praise Jesus, that should produce joy for us, encouragement to us. Again, we see in Psalm 38 verse 15, that our hope is in the Lord, that we are to answer to the Lord. And in 39, verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Jesus alone is to be our hope, and by his grace, he has people speak ill of us to remind us to trust and hope in him. Because when people speak ill of us, our temptation is to look inward. And to think, this they're making a mockery of me. But the goal is for us to not look at ourselves, but to look to Christ. To remind us of the truth of what Christ says about us. And in Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. You see, you know, we are to patiently wait upon the Lord so that it would be him who raises us up from the pit that we've fallen into rather than raising ourselves up And we will know that it is him raising us when the results of the deliverance from the miry clay, from the pit of destruction, whether that be because of sin or affliction or illness or scoffing, we will know that it is Jesus raising us because of the results of the deliverance, our praise. Our praise, he says, he brought me out and he put a new song in my mouth if you're crushed by your sin or feeling bogged down by the trials of life or you're feeling impressed upon by all this affliction and scoffing and mocking, that should produce praise. And if it doesn't produce praise but you feel fine, then what you realize is that you are the one that drug yourself out of the pit and you're really not out of the pit. And so let our deliverance be met with praise. And secondly, let our deliverance be met with, with people fearing God and trusting in Him more. As he says, many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. You see that when we are brought low by God, it's not only to be an encouragement in our faith to remind us of our need for Him, but when we see our brothers and sisters brought low and they're, They're they're humble, and they're repentant, and they're broken, and they're full of godly sorrow. And we see this affliction, whether they're battling sickness, or a loved one has died, or they're they're battling financial ruin, and we see them praise Jesus, that should instantly produce a greater fear and trust in the Lord for us. And our heart's response will be verses 4 and 5. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. And has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. And your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Our heart's response will be to stop thinking. will will be that we cannot stop thinking and talking about the many wonders of God as we entrust ourselves to him even more, as we become desperate for him, as we desperately worship him. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. He has brought us up out of the pit of destruction and of the miry clay. We should praise him forevermore. The song of praise should continually be on our lips. We should be a people marked by a continual thanksgiving unto the Lord. And according to verse 8, he says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart if it is Christ who has delivered us because we recognize our desperation for him, then our will will be changed into one that longs and delights to do his will. Even in the midst of chaos, trial, sin, scoffing, and other tribulation, if we are desperate for Jesus, like the widow, then our heart will long for Jesus. Our heart will long for Jesus no matter what is crushing us, we will long to do His will and we will find delight in His plan. And then, like David, verses 9 and 10, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth. From the great congregation. Again, praise on the lips. It makes us wonderful evangelists and teachers and preachers of the Word of God. I think of Paul in Acts chapter 14 when he's stoned nearly to death he's dragged out of the city they think he's dead and he's like no I have to continue to preach and so he goes and preach is the gospel and people get saved and then he goes back to where he was stoned and his message of the gospel is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I mean think about how powerful that message is as these people see a beaten, battered, bloody, bruised Paul continue to preach the gospel. Is that not encouraging? And so when we are beaten and battered and bloody and bruised in our lives, whether in the physical sense or the metaphorical sense, and we worship Jesus out of the desperation, that should be encouraging to one another. Man, I am so encouraged by so much of the faithfulness At Grace Church, as I see people get into the Word more and get into prayer more and come to more studies and come to more church events and come to more discipleship meetings and and no matter what, even though their life is full of all this chaos on the side, they've, they've pushed it all to the side and there's more joy, more peace, more fire for Jesus than what looks like has ever existed. And it's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me. It's humbling to me makes me rest in the truth of verse 11. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. As we cry out, the Lord be magnified, like they do in verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. If you love God's salvation, you should continually cry out, The Lord be magnified. Not just justification. Don't just think about the cross. Think about every single day as He is fulfilling you and and giving you everything you need in Christ Jesus for life and godliness. And the more we become desperate for Christ, like the widow is desperate for protection, the more we will cry out, The Lord be magnified. And the more we will remind ourselves the truth of verse 17. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. We are afflicted and needy. And it is God alone who is our help and our deliverer. Remember how we started this whole sermon in Luke 18? Talking about the return of Christ. And how how Christ will be searching for faith like this when he returns? Well, this faith David, David describes in Psalms 38 through 40 is the faith that the Son of Man will be searching for. A faith that is marked by constant and fervent dependence upon Jesus. A faith that is marked by our desperation For Christ, in our sin, in our trials, in our sickness, in when people scoff and say bad things about us, we throw ourselves upon Christ. And therefore, church, let us throw ourselves upon Christ and cry out to Him like David does at the end of verse 17: Do not delay, O my God. In other words, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, be our everything. Let us pray. God, you are so good. Lord, I pray that we all can resonate with Psalms 38 through 40. Lord, there may be times where we're not crushed by the weight of our sin. As we see David in other Psalms cry out to you and says, Lord, I am. I'm following you, I'm worshiping you. But still in those times, he says, Lord, search my heart. Show me my wicked ways. Lord, maybe there are times where we're not experiencing affliction and illness and trial. So, Lord, let us be desperate for you in the midst of our prosperity and our success. Lord, maybe there are times where nobody is saying anything hurtful against us. Where we're not living out the Beatitudes where we're not being hated or scorned or mocked for the love of Christ because everybody around us seems to love Christ or everybody around us seems to be indifferent to the point where they don't care that we are preaching Christ. But Lord, still in those times, let us be desperate for you. And Lord, when we feel incapable, let us be desperate for you. Lord, be glorified in our weaknesses as you make yourself strong, Lord, let us be a people marked by our desperate worship of you at all times. When times are good and when times are bad, when we have nothing and when we have a plenty, when we are broken and when we are fully healthy, Lord, let the cry of desperate worship be ever on our mouth. Lord, let us be like the widow, continually going to you in constant and fervent and desperate prayer. God, be exalted in our lives, create in us a greater longing and hunger and thirst for you and for your righteousness. Let the song of praise be ever on our lips, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.